create in France, Sydney. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. This is France, Sydney and this is Create with France, creating the life that you want through neuroscience. And today I brought you a really incredible guest and that is Jackie Hardin. Hello, Jackie. Hi, and thank you for having me today. It's such a pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you. So Jackie Hardin is a eating disorder specialist and of course, uh, working with children and adults, you, you have a wealth of experience. So we're going to be talking for a long while about our feed and how hypnosis and coaching or whatever else you use, anything that you use yeah. is going to help with eating disorders. Sometimes we have this problem that food isn't just food to nourish us or for occasion celebration. It becomes a traumatic event, something that makes us anxious, worried, tense, and it can be connected to a past traumatic event, it can be connected to how we see life, how we feel safe or unsafe. So there will be lots of problems and lots of emotional eating problems connecting to food. And because uh, Jackie is such a specialist, I thought I'll bring her in and we start talking about food and it's quite wild here. And I thought, why don't we go straight into this Arfid? It just sounds like a, a dog's name or something like a German dog name to me. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> What is this, Well, ARFID stands for Avoidant Restricted Food Intake Disorder, and it is quite um, different to other eating disorders. It's a DSM-5 uh, category, so it is uh, identified. You can be diagnosed with ARFID just like any other eating disorder. The thing with ARFID that is very, very different and distinguishes it from other eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, BED, is that it is not a person's um, worry about how they look. So there's no body image in there. It is literally an avoidance of food that can occur for a number of reasons, which can um, create a food phobia and can create just blockages on people not being able to eat. Um, and you will normally find that this is from birth and it can be that the person is just absolutely hardwired in this way. So you have things like autism, ADHD, um, which can actually present in a lot of children with ARFID. And it is mainly because um, it's quite a sensory disorder. So you will find that people um, will avoid the foods because they just like the smell, the texture, uh, just looking at it. Um, just touching it i have some clients that actually feel like they're going to be starved to life by actually touching the food so they are terrified to engage with food on that sort of level and it becomes then if you're unable to explore um, the touch the taste and you are unable to cope with the smell the smell of food how then do you eat it it becomes really problematic but it's also that eating disorder can develop from somebody having quite a traumatic experience in childhood. So um, reflux can cause it. People choking, having a choking experience um, can also then create something called emetophobia, which is a fear of vomiting and a fear of sickness. So um, there are lots of ways that can come about. I also do believe and I might stand alone in this, is that there is a genetic element to it. And the gene can lay there quite dormant and then something traumatic can happen and then bang, it can kick this off. Um, so it can be quite underlying. But then again, if you're looking at autism and ADHD, then there is a real genetic and neurological reason for it being 
Yes, it's quite a thing, isn't it? And yeah, I did treat two people with amatophobia. It was really trauma-related to some interesting experience they had, and um, they both recovered. And uh, it's interesting how it's very sensory-related. That's um, Yeah, absolutely. So um, the sensory aspect is the tastes like salt and sugar and all of that can be so heightened. Honestly, you can give somebody plain scrambled eggs and if you put in one flake of origanum into that, they will know and they will instantly stop eating it. So I think for the person with ARFID, it's really, really important not to hide things because they know and they can also become quite attached to certain types of foods, so quite bland looking foods. Mm. Um, or like the beige, like the chicken nuggets, the chips, the, the rice krispies, that type of thing. But they can also become quite brand specific, which is quite scary. So for example, if somebody like Kellogg's had to change the brand of rice krispies and the picture on that package, it can actually cause a child or an adult to stop eating that because they no longer trust what is being given to them. So it can be on such a high scale that it can affect a person and it really um, can bring about a lot of anxiety, a real, real fear that if you had to equate it, it's like taking somebody who's really, really terrified of heights and then asking them to work their way through that. So I think um, I have a lot of parents that come in and by the time they've come in, they are um, at exhaustion. Um, they are really struggling and not knowing how to help their child work through this. Um, and I think sometimes might be even at a point where um, they can not gaslight their child, but get so frustrated that it's like, why can't you just eat it, just eat it. And then that can almost elevate the level of anxiety within the person who's struggling. I guess that goes for anybody. You place somebody who's scared of like being on heights at the top of a bridge, and then all of a sudden you're like, go on, jump. Why can't you just jump? Come on, jump. It can elevate their anxiety. But then if you start saying to him, oh my God, there's a whole queue behind you. Now, come on, get off there. That person is gonna really then feel that terror take over them. And it's the same thing with food. So it is about going, okay, Alfred is very, very uh, anxious based. It is about uh, trying to help a person feel safe and working with them in a way where you don't focus on food. It sounds crazy, but it's almost being quite nonchalant in your approach and recognizing that food is just food, food feels this way, feel you can touch it and really helping them explore that relationship that they have with food, but also looking sometimes at the underlying traumatic event, which can create that anxiety, like anxiousness in them and helping mm. clients work through that. That's so incredible. Do you know what? I'm just wondering, this is just literally coming to my mind. I think I saw some documentary, BBC style documentary, hmm. um, possibly from a Facebook advert or something. I can't remember. It was like a few months ago. And there were there were some cases, there was a special specialist, um, so good with my vocabulary today, a special specialist, right? I'm Italian in me. We <laughs> you know, selected you words. <laughs> special specialist a new title and uh, she was so good with um i don't know if it was arfid but possibly yes so mm -hmm. she was dealing with kids who would only eat 
yellow cereals from yeah. Kellogg's, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what we had was really interesting. So all the pressure was taken from sitting at the table yeah. and the children were uh, playing with food and making paintings with it. They're making figures, they're mashing it, they're throwing it, they're sitting on it, they're doing everything possible to explore what the food was doing. They were very young children as well. Yeah. And they were trying all sorts of things, like, for example, making the food into a jam and spreading it all over. And they say, oh, how does it feel if it's there? How does it feel? And then it was like near the mouth. And they were enjoying this different sensory experience. For me, it was interesting because they took the pressure off, you know, parents eat the food, we're going to go out. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is about saying to parents, you know, uh, food should be a place or mealtime should be a place where you come together and you can use that opportunity to talk, find out about how your day was and make it less focused on actually what's on the table giving children or even adults the choice of what it is that they want to eat. I think a lot of the time there's an expectation placed on people of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to eat. And actually, the one thing that we cannot control is what a person chooses to swallow and what a person chooses to eat. And that can make somebody feel, especially a parent who just wants the best for the child, it can make them um, feel like the parent has a loss of control over that child but it is about giving a choice and sometimes by placing the food out in the middle of the table and allowing them to decide what it is and what it isn't that they want to have as opposed to placing it on their plate and having the expectation that they eat absolutely everything in front of them or that they eat what is given to them choice is so important and i think a lot of the time what we don't realize is, is that as adults and i'm guilty of this as well is that we try and remove that choice and by removing that autonomy Autonomy, it can also increase a person's anxiety. Mm -hmm. Exposure therapy, which is what you were talking about, is really, really beneficial. The problem is that some children do have such a heightened sense, sensory system, that even engaging in that touch aspect or placing it anywhere near them can make them feel like they're going to be scarred for life. And that can be down to a traumatic experience that they've undergone. So it is by using like the psychotherapy, the hypnotherapy, and all, like I've got quite a broad modality, so I'm a nutritionist. And it's using those to encompass like a holistic way of how you're going to work with that individual and their uh, offered type. So there are different types of offered that a person will be working or have. And it's identifying how to work with that person on a very individual level so that you can help them overcome, I guess, in a sense, their, their biggest fear or the biggest block. Um, and I think from our point of view, it's like a lot of clients will talk about how there is just a block that actually they can see what they need to do. They know what they need to do. Logically, it's like I need to pick this up, put this in my mouth and chew it. But there is a definite block that will just stop them. And it is trying to identify where that's coming through and how to push through it so that they can get the sense of safety that they know what they are consuming is going to be okay. Yes. It must be terrible that you, you want to eat, you're hungry and... Yes. Food in there. Yes. And, and that's huge because as children, you know, if they don't overcome it from a young age, if they're unable to work through it at a young age, 
Um, and it is quite tricky because obviously cognitively, children, uh, their brain is very, very different. It's developed very different. Their cognitive way of processing the world is very, very different to an adult. Their perspective of the world is very, very different to an adult. So trying to work with a child on an adult's level is also going to be really, really tricky. It's about engaging with a child on a child level. So cognitively, they can gain a perspective of what it is that you're trying to help them to do. Does that make sense? It's like, um, sometimes it's about working with food and going, oh, okay, I can eat a sausage, but I can't eat ham. And it's going, okay, so, if you look at it logistically for us, it's the same meat type. Texturally, they are very, very different. They even feel different, they can smell different. So you can say to a child, well, if you can eat a sausage, why can't you eat this? Because they are very different. But it's trying to get them to gain an understanding that by the time, like, if you look at a sausage and you roll it out with a, like a, a rolling pin, you're compressing that sausage. So you're introducing a perspective to them to let them know that this, this is really the same food type. It's being presented in a different shape, in a different form, and that's okay. Now, this has been so incredible. So learning how the parent has to let go a little bit of the control so we can then understand we're almost violating a child if we force him to eat food when it feels like impossible so it it's it's an important thing to understand that you have a first-hand experience of knowing what it's like in your family to have this outfits you're not here coming from up there from your university degrees and telling us oh yeah i know all about outfits because i studied in a book no actually you know what it's like so you can really talk from both sides so i would like to explore this with you and see what it's like from the other side sure so um i guess when i was born it's a long time ago but um i definitely struggled with food and i struggled with the texture um so in particular meats i couldn't handle like bolognese um the bounciness on my teeth uh, would just be awful tomatoes, um, spaghetti, stuff like that, it would make me gag. And I really struggled with the consistency. I struggled with the texture of it in my mouth and I really struggled with the smell. So the overwhelming smell of it all, of it all was um, off-putting. And I didn't see food as uh, something I enjoyed at all. And I didn't feel the need for it. Um, I wouldn't have uh, milk and stuff like that, so I'd, have, I'd eat cereal dry. Um, and I think it got to a point where actually I landed up having cereal with orange juice at, at one point, but it started from birth. So I would not drink milk and um, my mom would walk me around the garden for hours and hours and hours trying to get me to have milk and I wouldn't have it. As it progressed, um, it became very difficult within the family because obviously back then, I don't think it was even known about. Um, I think it was seen as fussy and it's just been very, very clear that Arford is not fussy eating. You know, all children would be selective with their eating and, um, you know, have it like the, the toddler stage, but they land up outgrowing that and they don't have such a phobic response to food. So it, it's, quite easily dismissed as just being fussy hmm. and um it created a lot of anxiety around the table i can remember my father sitting there when i was about seven and making me eat the spaghetti bolognese and i threw it straight back up on the table and that type of behavior 
um, compounded the issue because all of a sudden I felt very different. I could feel the pressure. The meal times were absolutely awful for me um, and I did not want to engage in them. But not only having that, I think having a parent that was trying to take control um, was very, very tricky. And I can understand why they do it because they become so anxious. Their child is literally starving to death, very, very um, deficient in a lot of minerals, malnourished in a lot of instances as well, not growing, not thriving, not gaining weight. So for a parent, it must, it, well, I know it's, it's absolutely terrifying, but the pressure and the anxiety that I felt and um, consequently came from um, having people perceive me as different and that fear of judgment from not eating then developed into anorexia um, and it then became like actually if you are going to try and can take control of me I'm going to now take control of what I can do and since food is something that actually never interested me in the first instance it's the easiest thing for me to go you know what no no more um, so it can and that's the thing if it's not managed well it can result and perpetuate other disorders uh i think the fact that as a professional dancer also just meant i was exposed to a world where i was being weighed so that then also eventually just triggered a whole raft of things so it started sort off at one point and landed up at me being the age of 21 before i was fully recovered fully recovered to, to be the op, like the, the big thing there is that I think a lot of people think that recovery is impossible. Um, it absolutely is, but I do think that you have to identify the traumas that you go through. You have to look at the experience that you've undergone and then really start engaging and working towards your recovery with the right type of people. And that's also key. Um, I think having Sometimes CAMS can take the approach with some of the offered people that I've worked with. CAMS is like the homework that they set is right now, you've got to go home and you've got to eat this. How? <laughs> when it's such a phobic response, how is placing that pressure on somebody actually helping them work through eating that food? So where the psychotherapy and the hypnotherapy comes in is it can really work with that person to identify what those blockages are so they can shift them so they can regain a trust and feel safe and also re-identify with themselves because by the time they come through and they hit me, they're a lot older in life. They fear the judgment, they procrastinate, they're very, very uh, social anxiety is massive because they don't want to be in an environment where there's food, where they feel that people are going to be staring. Um, so there's there's other things that have gone on as this person has you know, gone through life. So it is really working from a holistic point of view about what's going on with that person. The other thing I think is like a, a lot of people try and take away the exercise because of the calorie deficit. And I think part of recovery is also going, actually, do you know what? If a person really, really loves exercise and that's their way of being, then you can introduce that in, a, in an aspect where it's safe and it doesn't become this excessive form or this form that's going to be detrimental to a person's health. So it really is re-educating a person on every aspect of themselves and allowing them to be okay that they have this. And whilst they're never going to want every single food in their life. I don't think that's natural for anybody to just want to eat absolutely everything. Some of us just don't like certain foods and that's okay. 
Yet somebody, when they're off it, it's perceived as not okay and they struggle with that. So it's reconnecting to actually, you know, who am I after this journey? Uh, what do I enjoy? What do I not enjoy? How does the anxiety um, manifest in my life? And how can I move forward taking control of this as opposed to it now controlling me? Yeah. Yeah, I like the holistic approach. Now, we know that this is not viewed just by people in the UK. So for those who are not in the UK, what is CAM? Ah, so, so CAMS is a part of the NHS and it's uh, the Child and Adolescent, I can't remember the exact acronym for it, but it is for children and um, young adults that have eating disorders. It's a specialist team um, and it is the, the primary focus is to focus on refeeding. So when a child is really, really at a, a, a nutritional uh, deficit and actually they are um, their risk and their weight loss is so significant, they then do go through to CAMS, one for a diagnosis on what the eating disorder is and two for the necessary um, treatment to help them recover. Um, but it is quite traumatic in itself being refed. And I think sometimes boss, I don't disagree with it because the brain function, if you aren't nourishing the brain, how are you going to be able to recover mentally? Because you have to feed the brain and the brain will also change um, because of the trauma that you've undergone nine out of 10 times. So refeeding is very, very important to help that brain function. If you think about it, it is a lump of glucose. So when you are so uh, deficient um, and so malnourished, your body does start to uh, eat itself so it can support itself. So that aspect is very important, but it's not the only aspect. And I think you have to look at the whole the whole picture of what that person is going through. Mm. Yes, very important. Thank you for the explanation. and. Is it is this a good moment to talk about the RFID issue in December when everyone is eating foods and going out and partying? Yeah. Is that something that's going to play? Yeah, it's going to be huge. I think, um, first of all, Christmas is a time where food and drink and socializing and, and it's huge and it's very hard to get away from. So first of all, I know a lot of clients actually don't want to put themselves in that social environment because they feel like they're going to be looked at. So the social anxiety is really, really high. They fear the judgment because they're not going to find something that they're going to be able to eat. So they're going to be the only one sitting there that's not having something. And so it is a time where um, it can perpetuate uh, the anxiety and the fear of the food itself because you're going to be presented with everything that actually can scare you but it's not just after it's all the other eating disorders so the binge eating disorder um the bulimia the anorexia it's it's massive that this time of year is about food so you have people with uh, bulimia that will be in a cycle where they binge they purge they uh, then restrict and they'll go back around. And obviously there's a lot of baking going on. There's a lot of eating out going on. They do have the fear about their figure. Um, body image is quite important. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a time of the year where it can trigger so many, so many people. Hmm. Hmm. So when we talk about resolution, 
So in this episode, what can we talk about? Which are we talking about RFID first in general? What kind of solutions are there for us? So we talked about the CAM and they can have their own ideas. Then yeah. you, you obviously psychotherapist, but also you do hypnosis. Yeah. How does hypnosis work in this? And is there, you know, are there a number of sessions you need to have? Do you have sessions and homework? How does that work? Um, yeah, I tend not to have homework. I think that's quite CBT focused and that's absolutely fine. Their family gets on with CBT, that's brilliant. One thing I did get asked by a child who's anorexic is like, you're not going to give me homework, are you? <laughs> um, so it is, you know, it is some people will come in and they love the homework aspect. So again, it's very, very, individual to that person you'll find by working with that person they have a way of being and a way of wanting to work with you but not only that it's the age so a person of eight you're going to work with in a very very different way to a person who's 21 22 23 and older because their cognition is different their development is different their understanding and interpretation of the world is different how i speak to them and how I engage with them, I will take myself down to their level so that they understand what we're trying to achieve and feel safe and not threatened in the way that we're trying to do it. So that's the thing, when you say, how many sessions, what is it? It's very difficult to give a one-stop shop, if that makes sense. It is really, really individual to that person, but it is also understanding, like I'm quite lucky with my nutrition and the hypnotherapy, and the NLP and the psychotherapy that, you know, NLP, if we want to go goal-driven, CBT with psychotherapy, we can do goal-driven, looking at the nutrition and the deficits and actually what type of food we're trying to encourage in their diet is quite important. Using the uh, exposure treatment, that's quite effective as well, but it will be amalgamating all of it. And the conversational hypnosis and the hypnotherapy, you can come in quite oblique so you can actually gain an understanding of where the blockages are coming from to help root that out and help gain momentum quite quickly. So for me, I've had one lady come in this week, actually, um, four two-hour sessions. By the end of the fourth session, she was then eating avocado, tomato, ham, salmon, garlic, salmon, all baked and like that by the end of it and loving it. So, whereas I'm working with an eight-year-old child and um, not only uh, is their type of offered very different um, and not only is the trauma behind it very, very different, it's taken us longer to gain the child's trust and just that element of safety around the food. So again, very, very different ways of working. Yes, I do like to ask these questions because I imagine those who are watching these episodes are not just filling their time, they do have a problem. Yeah. They might want to approach you with those questions and yeah. how long does it take, yeah. how many sessions, because they're going to ask how much is this going to cost, yeah. <laughs> yeah. obviously. Yeah. But you can't really say, you know, like how many sessions for cancer, you don't know how many sessions for cavities. You don't know, you have to open their mouth, have a look inside, see what's going on, and then the dentist will tell you, okay, that's the work I think you need. But after they start, they say, oh shoot, you have this other problem we didn't realize, and you address it. You can't just say, all right, one size fits all. It's yeah. very hard to guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's going, okay, so I've had four two-hour sessions. The three two-hour sessions, we're working on trauma. We're working on other aspects from childhood, 
were working on narcissistic relationships that had also compounded the issue. So it is like working like with an onion, isn't it? You take the layers off until you get to the core and then bang, once you've managed to do that, you have one final session, which was her fourth session, where she was eating what she chose she wanted to based off of her first steps. From there, she'll be able to introduce other things because she knows that she has the ability and she has the control over her mind to be able to work through how she's feeling and then be able to face those foods. Typically, for even a young child, you wouldn't go beyond 12 weeks. And then again, it's another thing going, you can work with a person for a year, but if they're resistant to change, you're not gonna get the change about. So the person really has to be willing and wanting to get that change and recognize that hypnotherapy isn't this magic wand I'm just going to wave and I'm going to fix you. It's a case mm -hmm. of a relationship that's mutual and we're going to really work through and look at what's going on together to get the best outcome for that individual. So yeah, it's I think making that very clear because I think a lot of the time we get that stage hypnotherapy, which is wonderful. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> but all of a sudden somebody's forgotten their name or all of a sudden somebody's stuck to the spot, or all of a sudden somebody's talking in Martian, and then they come back out. And I think sometimes people see that, oh, all of a sudden someone's <laughs> taking my problem away. Yeah. It's deep-rooted. It's completely different. You know, stage hypnosis yeah. is made with highly suggestible people who choose yeah. to be there, yes. but want to have great fun. They're ready for that. They're primed. But normal people on the road, they're not just like dying to do something very specific. They're like thinking, oh, maybe it's relaxation. They have no idea. Yeah. And when you get there, it's so introspective and so calming and relaxing. But in the end of the day, you need to have that decision, that resolution inside yourself that you, you want change. And you need to change. And we're always avoiding pain. We as humans, we're just avoiding the pain. So we're avoiding the food, we're avoiding the pain. Yeah, and I think also it's the exposure and the vulnerability um, that somebody can actually feel and the shame. And a lot of the time it is the, you know, the silencing of their voice um, and the secrecy. The secrecy of these disorders can lead to a lot of uh, feeling isolated and ashamed and lonely and like you you can't reach out and then when you reach out and actually you have to acknowledge to yourself that you have this problem it can put you in a really vulnerable position because you are now you're exposing you're bearing you know your secrets to somebody potentially that you don't know and that that is really really um really difficult to to have that sort of reflection about where you are in your in your recovery process yeah um so yeah yeah i do have one, one more question <laughs> yeah, go for it go for it like my specialization is anxiety disorders phobias panic attacks yeah. and usually what as i educate my clients how to get out of them is like the more stuff you avoid the more stuff you will want to avoid because you're proving to yourself that you are safe and you had to avoid more until you're stuck at home for years on end yeah. so does it work the same with our feet so the more food you avoid and you feel safe the more you are more likely to avoid because you feel like now you're control of your safety or does they work differently with our feet? no no you're right i think um 
they, you, you tend to stick with the same type of foods that are your safe foods and you'll carry on circulating around those. Uh, sometimes the problem with children is they will get bored and actually as opposed to introducing a new food, they drop the food. So then you're limiting it, it becomes even more. So um, yeah, you're right. It is about, yeah, you, you're absolutely spot on. Yeah. I always say that some of the outfit can somehow, if it's mild, just go away because you're distracted and you just, because you're not thinking much. And when there is so much attention, could there be a case in a million where the child, there are two types. One is the picky eater and one is the outfit. There is quite a difference, right? So with the picky eater is getting so much attention. So there's a secondary gain in, in keeping that because, oh, mommy's going to give me the special food because I'm a picky eater. Um, so does the outfit thing also have this secondary situation that because your child will not touch some food, he's going to get a preferential treatment that's going to make him feel special and therefore would the child be worried about losing the special attention? I mean, just a question of throwback because I don't know. <laughs> so it can be. Um, I, I do see secondary gains with it, normally if there's trauma. Um, I have had children where they are offered, um, they're 21 years old, they're coming in, they um, have come from a background of um, psychological abuse, um, but the only way for them to gain attention is from the emetophobia, from this really, really um, heightened anxiety that uh, the mother or the father will then step in and give them the attention that they're seeking. So it is about going, sometimes they don't want to let go of it because it is the one and the only one thing that allows them to be seen. But it's the same in the token that actually, like with anorexia, sometimes the weight loss can be that actually they want to disappear. They want to dissolve away from the world. They don't want to be seen. So it's very, very specific to different people, different disorders. It's not the same for everybody. But yeah, absolutely, there are secondary gains um, that you need to look at. Somebody, for example, with a binge eating disorder or bulimia and can put on a lot of weight because they've been sexually abused. So that will offer them a layer of protection and in a real sense, a real layer of protection that nobody can violate them again. So it is looking at that person, the disorder, the reasons for being, the trauma, um, their actual wiring of their brain. It could be the autism and the ADHD. It's, it's, it's so um, individual. Uh, I guess every person is, isn't it? Because we all travel this world on our own. Yeah. So fast, but I guess that um, there will be an attention span that goes down after a while. So we will close with maybe a tip that you can give to a person today is having somebody in their family or is suffering with this, what would you say to them? The first thing I would say is that you're not alone. Yeah. Um, you are not alone. For parents, a lot of the time they'll perceive this as their fault. Um, and it's like recognizing that, you know, it's not. And if you can reach out and gain the support for your child, the minute you see the symptoms, the minute you see it start to manifest, don't wait. Reach out for support. Know that there is support out there for any eating disorder. 
where if you work with a professional, you're not going to have that judgment. There is no judgment. There is no perception that somebody's done wrong. So it is about reaching out, getting support as soon as you can, because it just means that your recovery time will be quicker and it will help you live a life that is like so fulfilling, you know, um, and so much more beyond the disorder. Completely different life. And that's the whole reason of my show, Jackie, is to create this life that we want. Yeah. But we can't create it until we yeah. take yeah. the first step to tackle it with some professional there because yeah. we don't know everything and we don't know what we don't know. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I definitely um, came from a place where, you know, I suffered a, a stroke and my electrolytes were imbalanced and malnutrition. They didn't think I was going to have children, all these things. And I am fully recovered and I am able to do my exercise and I'm quite lucky in that I do have two beautiful girls and I've been blessed with that but it is about going you know there is life beyond and recovery will end there will be a point of where you are no longer in recovery just living life it's brilliant and that's a, a brilliant message to leave to our audience so i want to thank you so much for being on the show thank you yeah thank you very much i've thoroughly enjoyed it <laughs> well it's dope to be here to learn more stuff i learned so much from my guest i'm like oh maybe i should specialize in this now <laughs> yeah it's it's the fashion aspect isn't yeah. it <laughs> you guys we're gonna put links below the episode description on youtube and in the podcast so make sure that you share these episodes with anyone you know that might be interested in knowing about uh, these kind of disorders click share subscribe and of course please log in into itunes and then leave a review for a podcast you can only do that when you're logged in i didn't know that if you leave a review you help a podcast to be seen by more people so we can help more to know about how yeah, I think that's key. I think um, a lot of the time, eating disorders, nobody wants to talk about it. And then when you do talk about it, it's like, I think everybody feels scared to like react, to admit like, oh my gosh, yeah, I can identify with that. I got this. Yeah. And so honestly, the more that we can get the engagement, the more it helps somebody else feel like they can actually reach out. Indeed. But it's not taboo here on the, on the show. We can talk about it. Feel free to contact anyone that you would like or if you want Jackie Hardin on the website that we will indicate below and me for any other specialized eating disorder that's what we want we want people to get better yeah. with a best person really yeah, and um, it's not about me it's about you guys getting better so thank you again and um, have a lovely week and I'll see you all later bye 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 Franz thank you you've listened to Create with Franz Sydney